at the conference yesterday, I want to talk a little bit about Jesus Christ. And I know that uh, the symbols don't show up terribly well, but within a short walk of this church, you could meet a Muslim. You could meet a Hindu. You could meet a Buddhist. Uh, we live in a shrinking world. Uh, we have less chance. Uh, you know, people have debated how do we reach people in other religions. Well, now they, they live with us. And it gives us the opportunity to share about the person of Jesus Christ. So here's a question that I have for you this morning. What do you think is the biggest apologetic challenge that the Christian worldview faces today? Uh, that is, what is the, what do you think uh, Christianity has the hardest time confronting? Uh, what, what kind of issue do you think might be involved in that? And as you're thinking about it, I'm going to share a little bit what, what I think about that topic. I think that there are two very powerful forces in the world today. Uh, science is one of them. Science has changed the way we live. If you were born in 1900 and you were uh, white, you could expect to live 47 years. Science and technology has lengthened our life. If you're born today and you're a woman, you might double that 47. Science and technology is a powerful force, but it also is a, a challenge in terms of how does Christianity relate to it. Another challenge is religion. Uh, how do we know that Christianity can be uniquely true when, when there are all of these other faiths and all of these other people who worship different uh, gods? So I think the greatest challenges to Christianity are twofold. Secular science, things like evolution, uh, things like the multiverse. Maybe we don't need an explanation for the origin of the universe because of secular science. And of course, my colleagues at Reasons to Believe, uh, I'm kind of the oddball on the scholar team. I'm a non-scientist. Uh, but my colleagues address these kinds of challenges. But I would propose that science is no more a challenge than the issue of the alternative religions. We know that Muslim people tend to be devout. We know that there are other people in other religions who are very serious about their faith. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about the world's religions, and here they are. There are 11 major non-Christian world religions. So how does Jesus relate to the leaders of these religions? Here they are from B to Z, Baha'i, Buddhism, Confucianism, Hinduism, Islam, Jainism, Judaism, Shintoism, Sikhism, Taoism, and Zoroastrianism. How does Jesus relate to those people in the world's religions? How does Jesus relate to the religious leaders of those particular religions? Now, take a look at this pie chart. Uh, one of the things that I want to say about this is that Christianity, Christians make up about a third of the world's population, about 33%. But one of the points I want to make is that if you went back 100 years, Christianity was still about 33% of the world's population. Uh, on the other hand, Islam, 100 years ago, was 12%. Today, it's more than, uh, it's about 24%. So Islam's market share has, has doubled. 
Islam is growing at a much faster rate than Christianity. And there was a Pew report that came out a few years ago, and it said that if trends continue, that by the year 2050, there'll be 9 billion people in the world. 3 billion of them will likely be Christian. 3 billion will be Muslim. And then there'll be 3 billion others of different faiths and of no faiths. So we see that Christianity has competitors among the world's religions. Here are the five religions that I think are the most influential in the world. And the reason I think they're influential is largely because they proselytize. And, if, and certainly Christians and Muslims want to invite people into their faith. Buddhists and Hindus do the same. Judaism is far less of a proselytizing religion, but remarkably, even though Judaism makes up about maybe 16 million people, it is still a profoundly influential religion. Now, for the last 31 years, I've been going to the university, and I talk with people, both students and faculty members, and they often have uh, deep questions. And the three questions that I often am asked when I go to the university are up here, and I want to spend just a little bit of time talking with you about how I go about answering these questions. Number one, why can't all the world's religions be true? Uh, we live at a time where we talk about tolerance, where we talk about inclusion. We live at a time that philosophers might call a postmodern period. So why can't all the religions be true? Why do Christians have to claim that their religion alone is true? Number two, isn't Jesus just another religious leader? I mean, you can, you can see the face of Buddha or the face of Confucius or Muhammad or Lao Tzu. What makes Jesus different? I'd like to address that with you. And then finally, what makes Christianity unique among the world's religions? Now, when I wrote this book, um, God Among Sages, I really began thinking about writing this book about 25 years ago. 25 years ago, I was teaching a class on the world's religions at a public college. And there were lots of different religious folks in the class. I had two Hindu students. I had a couple Muslim students and Buddhist students. There were a number of Christians in the class. It was just at the period where um, uh, I was doing a lot of speaking. And some of the students discovered that I was a Christian, because this was not a Christian college. And I remember after the final exam, about a dozen of them stayed after, and they all had the same question for me. They said, Professor Samples, why did you pick Jesus? Why did you pick Jesus instead of Buddha? Why Jesus instead of Muhammad? And I thought to myself as I was talking with them, I wish I had a book I could give them and say, you know, here, is, here are the reasons why Jesus is not just one more religious leader. And so if you'd like to know a lot more than what I can share with you in a short period of time this morning, uh, we have some books at the back, and I talk about why Jesus is God among sages. You know, uh, the reality is you and I don't compare very well to Jesus. You know, Jesus, Jesus actually lived the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus actually loved God and loved his neighbor as himself at every moment of his life. I struggle to love God and to love my neighbor as myself. As a fallen sinner and even a forgiven Christian, 
I tend to think about myself a lot. But Jesus fulfilled the law of God. So we don't compare very well. There's only been one perfect person. But the reality is, and it's the point I make in this book, all the great religious leaders of the world, they don't compare well with him either. Because he is God. He is Emmanuel. He is the savior of the world. Even Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad pale in comparison with Jesus. Now, I don't know if they have this bumper sticker here in London, but this is very popular in the United States. It says, coexist. Now, don't get me wrong, I think religious people ought to try to get along with one another. I mean, if you took all the Christians and Muslims in the world, that's about 55% of the world's population. We don't want a war between Christianity and Islam. We want people to live at peace with one another. But to say that they coexist, I think this bumper sticker is really asking, why can't all the religions be true? And what I want to share with you this morning is, I think there are th the idea that all religions can be true faces three intractable or unsolvable problems. There's just no possible way all the religions can be true. And I'm going to give you three reasons why. Number one, uh, the world's religions are so deeply divided. You know, I know Christians can disagree with each other from time to time. You know, we debate questions like, should we baptize infants or should we only baptize adults? Christians differ about some of the details about the second coming of Jesus. So Christians can be divided on various issues. But those are really secondary issues. In fact, even the differences between Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox are secondary. These are huge differences. These are staggering differences. Let me introduce some of them to you. Number one, the world's religions, they can't even agree as to what God is. There are some religions, like Judaism, they say there's one God. But you know, there are people within Hinduism, this is called popular Hinduism, they suggest there are 330 million gods. Can you imagine having a service where you'd have to name all the deities? How long would that take? One god, 330 million gods. Then there's a whole other side of Hinduism that says the universe is God. You and I are God. And then finally, the original form of Buddhism, it says there's no god at all. Well, how is that possible? We can't even agree as to what God is, nor can we agree as to who God is. Is God personal? Well, well, Jews and Muslims say that God is personal. But you know, as Christians, I think we would say, yes, God is personal, but he's more than that. Why? Because God is one in being, but three in person. There's a diversity of persons within the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But again, if you return to the East and you look at Hinduism and Buddhism, they think God is impersonal. So we can't agree as to what God is or to who God is. So what's the problem? You know, religion is supposed to solve the problems of human beings, but we can't agree as to what the problem is. Is it sin? Have we broken God's commandments? Or is it forgetfulness? Have we forgotten God? That's what Islam says. Or is it attachment to temporal things? That's the Buddhist explanation. So again, we don't agree. 
And if we can't agree as to the problem, we couldn't possibly agree as to the solution. Is it faith? Is that what God wants from us? Or is it obedience in Islam? Or is it meditation in Hinduism? I think you can see that the religions are not saying the same things. There, there are many different voices and different ideas. So the first problem is they're divided, deeply divided. The second point is they're irreducible. Now, one way we might think of making the religions true is to kind of reduce them to the lowest common denominator. Maybe we can find a common theme. But the problem is there's no way to reduce the religions. If you homogenize the religions, you take away the things that make them unique. And there's really no lowest common denominator. When I could help my kids with mathematics, you know, we would add and subtract, multiply and divide fractions, and you have to get the denominator all the same. There's no way of doing that. And the reason is, is that similar moral principles are motivated by and grounded in different views of reality. Here's Houston Smith, who is a expert on the world's religions. By the way, Houston Smith was born in a Christian family and was the child of missionaries to China. Uh, he's no longer a Christian, but it is interesting that Houston Smith says that Jesus not only preached the Sermon on the Mount, he actually fulfilled the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I don't know about you, you know, in the United States, we sometimes ask the question, what would Jesus do? I don't know, I don't always know what he would do. But when I do know what he would do, I have a hard time doing it. Because I don't need a prophet. I need a savior. Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me. Houston Smith says, for as soon as the notion of sameness moves beyond vague generalities, every religion has some version of the golden rule. It founders on the fact that the religions differ on what they consider essential and non-negotiable. So the problem with kind of reducing them all to a common theme is you can't separate what's good, ethics, from what's real, metaphysics. Or to put it another way, in Christianity, ethics are directly connected to doctrinal truth. Ethics flow from redemption in Christ. Now here's my, here's my example. In Christianity, we're told to respect other people, to honor other people. Why? because they're made in the image of God. So our, our practices, our ethical principles are based upon our theological system. But you know what? Muslims don't believe people are made in the image of God. Buddhists don't believe people are made in the image of God. So Christian morality is rooted in Christian theology. And there's no way to reduce them to the lowest common denominator. Now the third problem is really the biggest problem. They just contradict each other. They can't possibly all be true because they conflict with each other. And so I wanna talk just a minute or two here uh, about this problem of contradiction. I mean, logic is, a, logic is a very important principle. It teaches us what can be true and what can't be true. And I wanna illustrate the problem of contradiction by looking at two statements. I want you to look up there at Statement A and Statement B. Statement A says Jesus is God incarnate. So we're back to Emmanuel again. 
I think the central teaching of Christianity is that God has come in human flesh. We call that the incarnation. Carne is a Latin word for flesh, right? A carnivore eats meat. Well, Christianity says Jesus is God in human flesh. Uh, John says that, that the word in John 1, in verse 14, it says he's come in the flesh. The Greek word is sarx. So Christians say Jesus is God. If you look into the eyes of Jesus, he represents Yahweh himself. But notice B says, B says the opposite. And that's the Islamic position. The Muslims have a lot of nice things to say about Jesus, but they say he's not God. Well, uh, both of those statements can't be true. The law of non-contradiction would tell you both of those statements can't be true. Not both. And the law of excluded middle would say it's either or. So you know what? We talk a lot about tolerance. And we talk uh, a lot about respecting other people's religions. But there's no way all these religions can be true. If Christianity is true, Islam is fundamentally false. And if Islam is true, Christianity is false. We have to make a decision. Now, let's take a look at the scriptures. The Bible has never been pluralistic. The Bible has never been inclusivistic. The Bible has always been exclusive. When you deal with truth, somebody's right, somebody's wrong. Look at Jesus' words in John 14, 6. Jesus doesn't say, I'm one of many ways. It's okay to go to Muhammad. It's okay to go to Buddha. Jesus never said anything like that. Rather, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Peter, in the book of Acts, says something very similar. He says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So Christianity has never been pluralistic. So the answer to the first question, why can't all religions be true? Because common sense and logic in the scriptures tell us that all of the religions couldn't possibly be true. How about a second question? Isn't Jesus just another religious leader? Well, um, that's a really good question. And notice I've taken Matthew 16, and I have written it in light of uh, the questions people might have today. Who did the world's religions say the Son of Man is? Well, the Buddhists would say he's a bodhisattva, a type of Buddha that's here to help you experience nirvana. The Hindus would say he's an avatar, an appearance of a div divinity. And the Muslims say that Jesus is one of the prophets of Allah. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? The historic Orthodox Christians would say, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And so just as there were ideas about Jesus in Jesus's time, we have questions in our time. Now, many years ago, I grew up in a nominal Roman Catholic family. We went to church on Christmas and Easter and some of the more important holy days. But I didn't really learn uh, my Christian faith or my Catholic faith 
And when I was in college, my sister gave me a copy of Mere Christianity. How many of you have read a book by C.S. Lewis? Raise your hand. How many of you have read this book, Mere Christianity? Well, C.S. Lewis, of course, uh, lives, lived here uh, in England uh, on our tour here of, of London and the outskirts of uh, England. We visited his home. And uh, Lewis was an atheist who became a Christian. And in this book, Lewis makes the case that there's a shocking alternative that you come to when you read the Gospels. Now, Lewis was an expert on myth. He read Norse myths. He read all of the myths that are in Eastern and Western civilization. And when Lewis opened up the New Testament, he said, there's one thing I'm really sure of. And again, he was an expert on mythology and taught at Oxford University and later at Cambridge University. Lewis said, there's one thing I know from reading the Gospels. These are not myths. This is a historical narrative. And so since Jesus is, is a historical figure and not a legend, then we have, to, we have to deal with him. If he makes claims to divinity, is he lying? Or is he a lunatic? Or is he God? And I want to introduce you to some of the things that we discover in the Gospels. You know, Jesus doesn't just claim to be God, and he does. He says, I and the Father, we are one, John 10, 30. Uh, another time in his debate with some of the Jewish religious leaders, they get exasperated with him and ask him, who are you? And he says, before Abraham came into the world, I am. Well, Tonight, when you go home, open up your Bible to Isaiah 45 through 48. Yahweh likes to be called I am or I am he. So Jesus used the sacred name of God and said that before Abraham came into the world, I am. But he also acted as God. He also used divine prerogatives. There, there are certain things only God can do, but you know what? According to the New Testament, Jesus does the things that only God can do. He forgives sin. Mark 2, 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And one of the Jewish persons sitting there said, well, who could forgive sins but God alone? Jesus can forgive sins because he is God. He received worship. When they saw Jesus, they worshiped him. Matthew 28, 7. In John 14, he says, you may ask me anything in my name and I will do it. He can answer prayer. Jesus can hear your prayers and answer your prayers because he's God. One of the reasons I'm not a Roman Catholic is I don't think Mary can hear or answer our prayers. But Jesus can hear and answer our prayers because he is God. He was able to raise the dead, John 5, 21, for just as, Jesus, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. He's also able to judge humanity. John 5.22, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So take a look at these prerogatives. Jesus is able to do what only, only God can do. Only God can forgive sin, receive worship, answer prayer, raise the dead, judge humanity. Remember in the book of Acts when Paul and Barnabas the pagans began to worship them because they had done miracles. 
Paul and Barnabas says, don't worship us, we're just mere human beings. But you know, Jesus doesn't have a problem with people worshiping him because he is God. So we can put it into an argument. An argument is really a very simple thing. It's, it's not the spat you get into with your, with your spouse or with your kids. An argument in logic is really a simple thing. You make a claim and you seek to support the claim. The support are called the premises, the claim is called the conclusion, and a good argument is where the support really does in fact back up the conclusion. Well, here's a simple argument. Premise one, whoever does the things that only God can do is God. Premise two, Jesus does the things that only God can do. And so the conclusion is, therefore, Jesus is God. That's not true of any of the other religious leaders. In fact, there are many things in which Jesus stands apart from the religious leaders of the world. Did you know that, uh, that Buddhist scholars don't know what century the Buddha was born into? They don't know if he was born into the, the, uh, the fifth or fourth or third century. Uh, Krishna scholars don't know if Krishna ever lived. There are a lot of things that we know about Jesus. Um, we know about his moral nature. We know about um, his ability to change our lives. In fact, that's a point I want to make. Buddha cannot guarantee to take you to nirvana. Muhammad cannot guarantee to take you to paradise. Krishna can't take you to, to moksha. But Jesus says his death on the cross changes your relationship to God in the afterlife. Now let me move ahead here. So the answer to the second question is, isn't just, just Jesus just another religious leader? Well, I would argue his character, his claims and credentials say that he's not. And, and again, I would say Jesus is different in kind. My point is, you and I don't compare well to Jesus. But neither do Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, and Krishna. They pale in comparison to Jesus. And the answer is because Jesus is God. Now let me touch briefly. I don't want to go over too long, but I want to touch, I want to touch again this last question. What makes Christianity unique among the world's religions? And I want to introduce you to Viktor Frankl. Some of you know who Frankl was. Professor Frankl was a psychiatrist from Austria, and he was Jewish. And the, work, the worst luck possible, he was captured by the Nazis in World War II when the Nazis gathered up Jewish people and put them into a ghetto, and then slowly sent them to death camps. Well, Viktor Frankl lost his wife. His wife was murdered, their unborn child. His parents were murdered. When he was in the camps, he noticed that because the Jews were being starved to death and because they were forced to do heavy labor, he said when they gave up hope, they'd just fall over dead, hope that their spouse was still alive, or hope that the Allies would, would come and liberate the camp. The Allies liberated Anne Frank's camp two weeks after her death. So they're living on hope. And you know what I discovered in writing this book about the world's religions? Buddhists don't have a lot of hope. Hindus don't have a lot of hope. Uh, Muslims do not have a lot of hope. 
You know, the word father never appears in the Quran. Allah is not their father. He's their judge. But, but Jesus says we can call God the father, Abba. Now that's an extraordinary thing that Jesus said we could call Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of the Old Testament, we can refer to him as Abba, our, our personal father. Well, I want to say just a couple more things here, and I'm going to skip ahead because I got a lot to cover in little time. But I do want to, I do want to underscore this point again. Um, Krishna... Krishna can't back up his claims. I don't know if Krishna ever lived. And even if he did, he hasn't done anything to change a person's relationship before God. Um, there's a lot of doubts people have about Buddha. But Buddha can't guarantee you to give you nirvana, and Muhammad can't take you to paradise. You know, ultimately, prophets are really good. Uh, in the Old Testament, we have Moses and many other prophets. We have books dedicated to the prophets. In a sense, Jesus is a prophet. But what people really need is a savior. Because I've sinned in my thoughts and in my words and in my deeds. I've sinned by the things I've done and the things I've left undone. And once that sin, it, it's like toothpaste, as soon as it's out of the tube, I can't get it back into the tube. And if I die and see God, I don't want him holding a scale and put my works. What we have in Jesus, and I, I love the metaphor in the Bible. It's a bookkeeping metaphor. It says that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he has, he has all these credits Think of them as dollars. Think of them as pounds, if you will. Jesus has all of these righteous credits. And you and I, we're poor. We have debits. We have sins. Well, when Christ died, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he takes all your debits. He takes all of your sins. He suffers the wrath of God because of your debit. And then he takes all of his credits and puts them on your account. Well, Buddha can't do that. Krishna can't do that. Muhammad can't do that. And let me close with this, uh, this statement here. Uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who is himself a British bishop, N.T. Wright says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, there's a creed that the early Christians would recite together. In fact, sometimes they'd even sing it. And it says that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. And they recited this creed maybe weeks after the resurrection. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, not only did Christ die and was he buried and raised and he appeared, but because we believe in him, unlike Buddha, unlike Krishna, Confucius, and Muhammad, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, you and I will be raised from the dead. You can read a lot more about these ideas. You, many of you live here in London. You know how many people have come in to your country from different parts of the world and have brought their religion. 
it's a great opportunity for us to share our faith and share our faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you very much.